If you were in a band in New York City in the late 1980s, you wanted to play at CBGB's. This cramped, dingy dive bar in Manhattan's Lower East Side is where bands like the Ramones, Blondie, Patti Smith, the Talking Heads, Beastie Boys, all got their start. It could get pretty rowdy in there, especially when hardcore punk bands were in the lineup. But there was one band with a particular reputation. It was called Missing Foundation. At that point, they were starting to become notorious for their live shows, for um, being disruptive or whatever. That's Jim Waters. He was Missing Foundation's sound guy for those shows. Hilly Crystal, the guy that owned CBGB's, didn't want them to play there. That's because the last time they played at CBGB's, the band and their fans had been disruptive. The green room was trashed, and people in the audience banged on the walls with pieces of metal rebar. But Pete promised him that nothing would happen. He said, no, Scout's Honor, we don't do stuff like that. The band's frontman, Peter Missing, had to convince the venue to give them another shot. And then, just a couple days before the show, they started going around telling everyone, something's going to happen. And something did happen. A show that would become legend in the Lower East Side. There aren't any videos or recordings of it, but we spoke to a few people who were there. Like R.J. Smith. He was a music journalist at the time and a regular at CBGB's. And on the night of January 21st, 1988, he could tell something was different. It was a lot of people I didn't usually see at CBGB or at the clubs. It was a little different, um, just intense, uh, gloomy-looking young males. I don't know. I just remember overcoats, maybe, and, and, and short hair, and, and a real angry look. <laughs> the stage also looked unusual. Sitting next to the band's instruments were a few metal filing cabinets and a bullhorn. And Jim was given a secret plan to carry out. My job was to, to do the sound check and make it seem like everything's good. And then the moment the band started playing, to move all the faders full volume so everything would just be maximized and just feeding back. And, just, and, and, uh, and as soon as I did that, the club people came over and tried to push me out of the way, and I just kept shoving the faders up. Really heavy kind of... Doom, 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 you know, something, and the guitar is like just this heavy fuzz, you know, distorted wall of noise. And right away, all these people run up to the mosh pit at the front of the stage and just start slamming into each other, and it just gets wild. For people in the crowd who come out just for a night of live music, it was too much. They left. And it was like, oh my God, this is rock and roll. Oh shit. So, you know, it was too scary for them. Then the band activated what they called the gravity switch and started throwing stuff into the audience. Lit candles are flying through the air, broken glass. Mark picked up his whole drum set and threw it into the audience. Garbage barrels were lit on fire and rolled through the crowd. These big, massive speakers on each side of the stage. Really big monitors hanging from chains. And somehow those guys in the band and in their fan circle brought one down, uh, crash onto the, the club floor. One of them was lying on the ground. For a second I thought, okay, I hope this didn't land on somebody because that totally would have killed them. I, I heard that there was blood on the ground. I don't know. I didn't see any. There was definitely blood around. <laughs> Leading the performance like a maestro of chaos was Peter Missing 
who stood at the edge of the stage and screamed into the bullhorn. When he wasn't screaming, he jumped into the audience and got in people's faces. I'm sure he was just trying to get people to, like, riot, you know, like that's typically what he would do, you know. And later that year, the band would be accused of doing just that. On the night of August 6th, 1988, people gathered at Tompkins Square Park on the Lower East Side to protest a 1 a.m. curfew. But what started as a peaceful demonstration turned violent. The police are charging down Avenue A. They're charging down Avenue A. Full gallop, full gallop. The NYPD showed up in full force. They charged at protesters and beat them with nightsticks. More than 100 police brutality complaints were filed after that night. The NYPD later admitted that police actions were, quote, not well-planned, staffed, supervised, or executed. And yet, in the aftermath, some people were looking for something other than the police to blame and started to wonder about this notorious band that destroyed venues, whose logo was spray-painted everywhere, and who allegedly played a show in Tompkins Square Park right before the riot. What you're looking at and listening to is not music. It's something new, something called combat art. Just two months after the riot, CBS aired a three-part investigation called Cult of Rage. The group is called Missing Foundation, and it is not idle fancy or mere speculation to suggest a link between Missing Foundation and the violence that exploded here at Tompkins Square Park last August. The New York Police Department and the FBI have been searching for the roots and the details of that link. We found them. We wanted to know, did that link really exist? Did Missing Foundation actually cause the Tompkins Square Park riot? And were they as twisted as the media makes them out to be? Or were they simply making the wrong kind of music at the wrong time? I'm Lindsay Chu. And I'm Patrick Hagan. You are listening to Shoe Leather, an investigative podcast that digs up stories from New York's past to find out how yesterday's news affects us today. This season, we go back to the summer of 1988, to the Tompkins Square Park riot. This is season four. It's our fucking park. You're listening to The Party's Over. When we started reporting this story, the first thing we did was reach out to Peter Missing himself. But he didn't want to talk. He lives in Berlin now and said he, quote, lives in 2023 and doesn't want to revisit the past. So instead, we went looking for people who knew him and lived in the Lower East Side, his old stomping grounds. Hi, I'm Patrick. Nice to meet you. Thank you for meeting with us. And that's how we met Marguerite Van Cook. She's an artist, teacher, and old friend of Pete's. Yeah. She came to New York in the 70s when she was on tour with her band, The Innocents, who were opening for punk pioneers, The Clash. Uh, we had a manager who said he had booked us here in New York, and so we came to New York. And then when we got here, none of the gigs were real, and uh, we had nowhere to go back to, so I stayed in New York. <laughs> she settled in the Lower East Side, but at first, Marguerite was actually afraid of her new neighborhood. Everything was destroyed. All the buildings were vacant. Uh, It was pretty scary. There was a lot of drug dealing going on. 
Here's what you need to understand about New York at the time. By the end of the 1970s, after a decade of economic recession, the city had lost over 800,000 residents. They left behind thousands of vacant buildings. The city took them over, but left most of them just sitting empty. And the Lower East Side was littered with these abandoned buildings. In a lot of ways, they defined the neighborhood. But where many saw ruin, artists like Marguerite saw an opportunity. These empty spaces offered us a place to be creative. Marguerite and others banded together to convert some of those abandoned buildings into art galleries and music venues. We were able to take these empty spaces for very little money and turn them into creative sites of um, production, community, competition, and joyfulness. These spaces attracted young emerging artists from all over, including a 27-year-old named Peter Colangelo, who would later go by Peter Missing. We don't know much about his life before then, just that he was born in 1953 in the Bronx, and that, for as long as he can remember, he loved to paint. That's why he moved to the Lower East Side in 1980, to this growing community of artists. And that's where he met Marguerite. I love Pete. I'm just going to say, I love Pete. I have lots of his artwork. He's brilliant. He's a creative. And he's such a sweet guy. Yeah. Until he's not, and then he can be a real bugger. But he has never done that to his friends. Pete was primarily a street artist, and his colorful, busy murals were all over the neighborhood. In a video lecture he posted on YouTube a while back, he remembers how, when he couldn't afford brushes, he simply cut off a lock of his own hair and glued it to the end of a stick. And from what we've been able to piece together, Pete couldn't afford much. Not even the cheap apartments in the neighborhood, where you could get a room for $50 a month, or a full apartment for about $200. And so he became a squatter, meaning someone who moved into one of those abandoned buildings without paying rent or having any legal claim to be there. Oh wait, on the street there, in the hat? Where? In the, in the beret kind of hat? That could be him, that could be him. With the glasses? Let's see. Frank? Hey, yeah. Hey. Frank Morales was also a squatter at the time. Uh, my name is Frank Morales. I'm an Episcopal priest uh, ordained in 1977, a lifelong resident of uh, the East Village, Lower East Side, and um, was part of a squatter scene, first beginning in the South Bronx in the late 70s and then later down here in the East Village from 85 through, you know, the, the decade, decade and a half following. He explained how all the abandoned buildings in the Lower East Side made it a prime location for squatters. At that time, um, in the mid-80s, there were vast numbers of vacant houses all throughout this neighborhood, uh, particularly east of, of A here. Frank was actually a pretty well-known guy in the squatting scene and got connected with Pete. Pete and I, you know, we go back a long ways and, uh, you know, I love Pete. He was just somebody I thought that I would like to give the space to, because that's what you do. You kind of try to support people who are out there doing stuff. So Frank gave Pete his apartment in a building squatters called the Sunshine Squat. He took us there. Uh, yeah, we're at, uh, we're at uh, 7, what, what is the number here? 719 East 6th Street. 719 East 6th Street between uh, C and D. The front is painted red and the door to the building has a rustic design made out of iron. Frank says it's the same door from when Pete lived in the building. It was made by the squatters in an effort to fix up the place. 
Squatters often took it upon themselves to renovate the buildings they took over, something they called sweat equity. But beyond just finding a place to live, squatting was also thought of as a political movement, one that was spreading across the world. Part of the zeitgeist at that point, both in, you know, all throughout Europe, whether it's Berlin or Brixton, Rome, Paris, um, squatting was on the agenda. It was happening everywhere. The way Frank saw it, squatting was an act of protest against gentrification. And by the 1980s, there were signs that the Lower East Side was gentrifying. Real estate developers saw dollar signs in all those abandoned buildings and started buying them up with the promise of cleaning up the neighborhood. Pete's friends say he saw it coming. This community that was a haven for squatters and artists and Pete's new home was under threat. He and I saw eye to eye. He and I had just different ways of articulating it, but we're basically on the same page. You know, the world is fucked, and um, people gotta... Why they're not screaming about it is beyond me. Well, Pete did want to scream about it, and he found the perfect outlet to do so. Starting in the 1980s, local bands like the Chromax, Agnostic Front, and the Nihilistics took punk to new heights, playing harder, faster, and louder than ever before, channeling an ever-increasing rage towards authority and the status quo among America's urban youth. It would eventually be known as New York Hardcore, or NYHC. Pete entered the fray with his own band called Drunk Driving, but it didn't last long. Then, around 1984, he moved to Germany, for reasons we still don't know, and then returned a year later with an idea for a new band. He called it Missing Foundation. The name apparently comes from a government organization that hunted down people who escaped from the Soviet Union. We also think this is when he started going by the name Peter Missing. He recruited a group of musicians, and the band started performing around the Lower East Side in empty lots, art galleries, really, anywhere that would have them. If Missing Foundation had a theme, it was, quite simply, destruction. Physical destruction, musical destruction, but also the destruction of what they thought was an unequal society. As Pete wrote on his website, in all caps, as if he were yelling through a bullhorn, quote, it was a statement beyond destruction, which is also a form of creation. It was a rebellion against a government who lost sight of culture and humanity. Um, Pete was nothing if not an agent provocateur. That's Chris Sakis, former guitarist for Missing Foundation. You know, when he did his taxes at the end of the year, that would be his occupation, agent provocateur, because he really did like putting a thumb in the eye of anybody he perceived as part of the existing power structure. Chris remembers his first rehearsal with Pete and the band. He looked like a skinny Italian guy, and he often wore a baseball cap backwards, but for some reason it didn't make him look like a douche like it makes most people look like a douche. He seemed fairly, um, not, not fair, all that concerned with his hygiene, like one of those people that were, you know, deodorant, not going to use it because it could be bad for me. And, you know, uh, there was a lot of people in the band like that for whom B.O. was a way of life. 
Chris says he found working with Pete to be unpredictable. He seemed to not take himself all that seriously, but as soon as you would launch into a number, he was just all a ball of rage. And that rage would fuel Missing Foundation's music. You know, it was coming out of him in this stream of consciousness type of lyrics that he would scream into this megaphone to where he was like red in the face, you know? And that band was a very violent band. And they were about making a prolonged hypnotic racket. At the time, Chris was working at a radio station, WFMU in New Jersey. So he invited the band to perform at the studio and got a friend to film it. You can watch the video on YouTube. They're in a small room with record shelves on the wall. On the left side, Chris plays guitar next to the band's bassist, Vince Pete. Both are a little stiff, focused on playing their parts, but also shooting nervous looks at the other side of the room, where members Mark Ashwell and Chris Egan, shirtless and slicked with sweat, bang on drums, percussion, and metal cabinets with sticks. In the far corner of the room is Pete in his baseball cap, squeezing the mic with both hands like he's strangling it. At one point in between songs, the band apologizes for some of the damage. That's the Missing Foundation, and this is WFMU. Kaz! We died! We broke your window. Sorry. Sorry about the blood on the wall. At this, Chris laughs nervously, probably because there's actual blood smeared on the wall next to the drum set. It looks like someone used their finger to draw the basic triangular shape of an upside-down martini glass, and underneath it, some vertical lines that look like spilt liquor. It was a symbol Pete came up with in the drunk driving days, and he attached a slogan to it, the party's over. By 1988, as Missing Foundation was reaching the height of its popularity, people were spray-painting the upside-down martini glass all over the city. And soon, it was more than just a band logo. Their symbol, the upside-down martini glass with the lines. That's Ron Kuby, a longtime attorney who represented a lot of activists from the Lower East Side. That ended up all over the Lower East Side, all over New York City, and probably elsewhere, too. It quickly became the universal symbol opposing greed and gentrification. The hints have been proliferating like a random virus all over the Lower East Side. MF, 1933, the party's over. By this summer, the symbolism was everywhere and spreading fast, reaching as far north as Fifth Avenue at 20th Street, as far south as the abandoned band shell in East River Park. And everywhere you look, on cars, filling every available patch of wall or brick in Alphabet City. Then, in 1988, Missing Foundation released their most popular record, called 1933, Your House is Mine. 1933 was the year the Nazi party took over in Germany, which Pete saw as a warning of what was coming in the U.S. The album's standout song was called Burn Trees and would become an anthem for the neighborhood and for the fight against gentrification. That's Chris Sakis on guitar. I mean, the whole idea of burn trees was about 
like if you have trees in your neighborhood, it raises the property values and then people can't afford to live there anymore kind of thing. So a lot of his writing came from this perspective of uh, eat the rich and Occupy Wall Street and a lot of that stuff. A New York Times review of the album described it as, quote, mood music for urban chaos. And chaos is exactly what would break out on the night of August 6, 1988, during the Tompkins Square Park riot. And some would wonder if Missing Foundation was somehow involved. Here's what happened in the park that night. Some residents in the neighborhood had complained about the conditions in Tompkins Square Park. The park was home to many of the city's unhoused. There was rampant drug use. And punk bands played blaring concerts in the park all night long. It had become the epitome of the gritty underbelly of the Lower East Side. And so, local officials imposed a 1 a.m. curfew. And the police were called to clear the park. But some saw that as proof that the city was, in fact, trying to gentrify the neighborhood. Protesters came out to resist the curfew, and the police responded with brute force. If you look at footage from the Tompkins Square Park riot, you can see a large white banner that says 1988 equals 1933, revolt, another one of Missing Foundation's slogans. And in a way, it makes sense. The riot started out as a protest against gentrification, a cause Missing Foundation was now closely associated with. The NYPD was widely criticized for the way they handled the situation, and the captain who led the police response that night was fired. But the NYPD also suggested that the violence came from somewhere else. So Captain McNamara comes out of the goes into his little headquarters trailer and comes out and he's got this missing found, this piece of paper with a missing foundation symbol on it and it says on it, if you burn our people, we're going to burn yours. That's Paul DiRienzo, a reporter and activist who covered the riot. And the cops puts it in my face and he says, this is why we're here. This is why we're not leaving because these are found on telephone poles in this neighborhood. I suspect that the NYPD was very interested in them. Here's Ron Kuby again, the attorney. The NYPD certainly recognized that when Missing Foundation was playing in public venues, often acts of of civil disobedience and property-centered violence would accompany them. So if you're looking for a bunch of, of, of... anarchists and radicals and rock throwers and general disaffected people, if you're looking to find that group, you will find them at a Missing Foundation concert. There's this rumor that just before the riot, Missing Foundation played a show at a concrete band shell, you know, one of those covered outdoor stages in the middle of the park. Riled up by the performance, the crowd then went on to protest the curfew. And here's the thing. Missing Foundation had been banned from almost all indoor venues in the city because of their destructive shows. And so the outdoor band shell was one of the few places they could perform. But was there really a performance on August 6, 1988? I know that they didn't play that day. That's Jim Waters again, the band's sound guy. 
for sure. I, I, I don't, I really don't think that, I mean, if they did, it was something impromptu where they just showed up and started doing something, but it wasn't some big planned event, you know? We couldn't get a clear answer. We couldn't find any real, solid evidence that the band definitely played that day. But we also couldn't find proof that they didn't. We do know that Pete Missing and other band members were arrested at the riot. But Ron Kuby says that doesn't mean they incited the whole thing. And I understand that people who went to that scene would often engage in, in activities that, that were considered to be antisocial or, or in some cases simply unlawful. But, but no rational people suspected that missing foundation whose music utterly lacks structure, melody, harmony, m- musicology, or anything else, that somehow this group of anarchist musicians was deeply plotting rebellions. So probably the, the strongest piece of evidence that I can tell you that while Missing Foundation certainly must have been looked at by the NYPD, nothing ever came of it. They were never charged with anything. Uh, There were people, lots of people, people I represented who were charged with inciting to riot, who were charged with riot. um, and, And Missing Foundation members were not among them. And yet, just a few months later, CBS ran a three-part investigation suggesting pretty much the complete opposite. The group is called Missing Foundation, and it is not idle fancy or mere speculation to suggest a link between Missing Foundation and the violence that exploded here at Tompkins Square Park last August. Reporting from Tompkins Square Park, journalist Mike Taibbi looks like a poster child for an 80s New York City reporter. His dark beard looks like it's painted on his face, A long black leather coat hangs over his dress shirt and tie, and he's wearing one of those classic newsboy hats. And in this multi-part investigation into Missing Foundation, he insists not only that the band was to blame, but that they might have been part of a far more sinister problem sweeping across the country. In the second part of his report, Taibi visits a basement apartment that Pete supposedly lived in at some point. Those first official questions about Missing Foundation led investigators to this basement apartment, the Bowery and Sixth. He and the building's landlord go down a dark stairwell, holding flashlights as if they're entering an ancient tomb. The scene of destruction left behind by the apartment's occupants, David Kelly and Peter Colangelo, was extraordinary, disturbing, and in its unanswered questions, plain shocking. At first glance, it seemed to be... The they then enter an equally dark room, and their light beams reveal that it's full of junk. Piles of trash, pieces of wood, empty metal cabinets, and a broken sink on the floor. And then there were the other hints amid the rubble that something beyond mere political sloganeering had been going on in this windowless place. One wall spoke of hate, hate. Another of no pigs, dead pigs, slashed over the MF poster. Helter-skelter, the Charles Manson battle cry, was splashed across another wall. A gruesome photograph of a man impaled on a bed of nails sat astride a life-size replica of the same bed of nails. The odd bone or vial of liquid was there. Pamphlets from satanic cults, a candelabra with the black and lavender candles used in the satanic black mass. Essentially, Taibbi was accusing Pete of performing satanic rituals, of being a Satanist. And it turns out, 
Taibi's story was just one blip in a media firestorm over Satanism in the 80s. Only a month before Taibi's report, NBC aired this one-and-a-half-hour special. The Investigative News Group presents the Geraldo Rivera Special. Devil Worship. Exposing Satan's Underground. Whether a Satan exists is a matter of belief, but we are certain that Satanism exists. To some, it's a religion. To others, it's the practice of evil in the devil's name. It exists, and it's flourishing. There were plenty of news segments like this at the time. And watching them, you would think that Satanism was actually flourishing in all 50 states. But it wasn't. What was actually going on requires some context. In the late 1970s, America saw the rise of a new sociopolitical movement called the New Christian Right. Faced with an increasingly secular society, the New Christian Right wanted a return to traditional Christian family values. They formed lobby groups, political action committees, and soon became a notable force in the Republican Party, helping to elect Ronald Reagan in 1981. Television played a major role in this movement. In the 1980s, there was an endless number of shows hosted by televangelists like Jerry Falwell, who warned followers about the supposed satanic forces taking over the country. Right and wrong don't change. Nothing is relative in God's economy. What was wrong a hundred years ago is wrong today. Abortion has always been wrong. It will always be wrong. Pornography has always been wrong. It will always be wrong. Immorality, homosexuality is moral perversion. No matter what Liberace and Rock Hudson uh, may have done to the minds of the people of this country. Now, popular music has long been accused of spreading indecent or immoral messages. But televangelists took this to a new level by convincing people that the music industry was actively targeting whole segments of the population in order to corrupt them. And they could prove it. In January 1982, the popular talk show, Praise the Lord, aired a segment demonstrating clear evidence of satanic messages embedded in Led Zeppelin's classic song, Stairway to Heaven. I've actually taken the exact piece of tape that you just heard it off of, and I've reverse-thread the machine, and I'm going to play that exact piece of tape backwards now. Okay, okay just Proved to... that you've not doctored it I have it not in any doctored way. it in any way. All right, let's, let's go ahead and start. something there. All right, listen for I live with Satan, exactly. You might want to turn it up just a little out here on the floor. I live with Satan. Listen again. Okay. I live with Satan. How many in the audience heard that? All right. They later claimed that these messages could be subliminally absorbed by unsuspecting innocent children, even if they listened to it forwards. Horrified, Christian parents across the country started listening to their kids' records backwards 
finding all kinds of satanic messages. They contacted their local representatives, and in California, a bill was proposed that would require record companies to label any music containing what they called backmasking. It didn't pass, but by the end of 1982, backmasking was all over the news. It was the beginning of a phenomenon we now call satanic panic. In addition to groups that are blatantly satanic, there are also many recordings which some believe may contain satanic references in the form of backward messages. What's a popular song that has a reference to the devil in it? Chris Edmonds is a Detroit disc uh, jockey to whose specialty is finding secret recorded messages exhorting the devil by playing music popular with kids in reverse. A lot of people hear the phrase, my sweet Satan, here when they play this backwards. Backmasking would be blamed for all sorts of problems affecting America's youth, especially suicide. In several high-profile cases, parents whose children either attempted or died by suicide sued musicians like Judas Priest and Ozzy Osbourne. Most of these cases were unsuccessful because there was never any proof that a piece of music was the direct cause of suicide. But the idea that popular music was brainwashing kids stuck and even spilled into mainstream politics. In 1985, a group of women led by Tipper Gore, wife of then-Democratic Senator Al Gore, formed the Parents Music Resource Center, or PMRC. And thanks to their political connections, the PMRC was able to secure a Senate hearing on September 19, 1985. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We are asking the recording industry to voluntarily assist parents who are concerned by placing a warning label on music products inappropriate for younger children due to explicit sexual or violent lyrics. During the hearing, the PMRC brought out musicologists, child psychologists, and even a rock star turned priest to make their case. Arguing on the other side were record labels and musicians, including John Denver and Frank Zappa. But by far the most memorable moment of the hearing was when Dee Snyder, lead singer of the band Twisted Sister, gave his testimony. Next we have uh, Mr. Dee Snyder, the Twisted Sister, Freefall Talent Group. As soon as Snyder enters the room, all the photographers leap up to get a better view. His hair is an explosion of curly yellow locks draped over his shoulders. He's wearing a tattered jean jacket, a black tank top, sunglasses, and a cross around his neck. Mr. Snyder, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me here. I don't know if it's morning or afternoon, but I'll say both good morning and good afternoon. I'd like to tell the committee a little bit about myself. I'm 30 years old. I'm married. I have a three-year-old son. I was born and raised a Christian, and I still adhere to those principles. Believe it or not, I do not drink, I do not smoke, and I do not do drugs. He then makes the case against any musical censorship. The beauty of literature, poetry, and music is that they leave room for the audience to put its own imagination, experiences, and dreams into the words. There is no authority who has the right or the necessary insight to make these judgments. Not myself, not the federal government, not some recording industry committee, not the PTA, not the RIAA, and certainly not the PMRC. 
I'd like to thank the committee for this time, and I hope my testimony will aid you in clearing up this issue. But in the end, the PMRC got what it wanted. Two months after the hearing, the Recording Industry Association of America agreed to put a small black-and-white sticker on some albums with the words Parental Advisory Explicit Lyrics, which we still see today. So it looks like Missing Foundation was just another band swept up in a political crusade against edgy, provocative music, blamed for all of society's problems. But musicians knew that they had it the wrong way around. If there weren't problems, we wouldn't have to make the art. I feel that the art's being successful when it causes discomfort to people who are abusing other people. At this point, we should say, Pete adamantly denies he was a Satanist. So do all the people we talked to about him. We also asked whether he lived in the apartment featured in Mike Taibbi's story, with all the disturbing images. Frank Morales, who set up Pete and his squad, said it's possible but that any number of people could have come in afterwards to trash the place. He certainly doesn't remember Pete living that way. We also tried to get a hold of Mike Taibbi to ask him about the allegations against Pete and Missing Foundation. But we were never able to reach him, and our messages to his family members went unanswered. Ironically, though, after his investigation into Missing Foundation aired, it was actually a good time for the band. Thanks to the attention they got from the stories, they booked a few European tours and recorded a few more albums. They even released a song that sampled audio from the riot. But inside the band, things weren't going so well. Based on what several former members told us, Pete wasn't the best band leader, which might explain why members were constantly changing. I never heard anything along the lines of, you know, what you're doing is good, keep doing it. I would hear things like, what was that riff? What was that thing you were playing? Play that again. You know, it would be like that. Here's guitarist Chris Sakis again. Because I I don't even think I was told when I was no longer in the band. I just don't remember being invited to the next rehearsal. Basically, he was fired. There's still some bad blood between Chris and Pete. They even had a legal battle over royalties. But that said, Chris can't deny Pete's talent. So while I give him a lot of credit for the outward-facing aspects of Missing Foundation, uh, he could have been, uh, he could have dealt with the members of the band a little better. And as for the park, After another protest by locals on Memorial Day in 1991, the city closed Tompkins Square Park for renovations and demolished the beloved bandshell. The city claimed they did it purely for safety and sanitary reasons, but nobody we spoke to believed that. They didn't need to do that, but the bandshell had become such a symbol of everything that the cops thought was wrong with the park. They very much wanted it to go, and... Afterwards, attached to the wall at the old 9th Precinct was a big chunk of concrete that was labeled Tompkins Square Park Bandshell. They kept it as a fucking trophy. That precinct is also gone now, so we couldn't go see the Bandshell chunk for ourselves. 
and the spot where the Banshaw once stood is now a playground. In 1993, Pete moved back to Germany and settled in Berlin. Over the next few decades, he continued releasing music under the name Missing Foundation, but now he shifted his focus back to his first love, painting. On a Tuesday in late March, I got an email at 4 a.m. It was from Pete. Over the past few months, I had sent Pete updates on our reporting, who we were talking to, what we found, and kept reminding him that if he ever wanted to share his side of the story, we were ready to listen. Well, now it looked like he was ready to share. (laughs) Are you ready? Yes. It took a few tries, but eventually... Hello? Hello? Is this Patrick? Yes, is this Peter? Yes. Pete asked that we not record our interview with him. And then he told us that none of the people we interviewed could provide the true story of Missing Foundation, that only he could tell us exactly what happened all those years ago. But he refused to do so. He was convinced that the FBI was tapping his phone, something that Pete has alleged for decades, but we couldn't find any evidence of that. So I suggested doing an interview over Zoom or through email. But he still didn't want to talk about it. We asked him why, and he told us that it was just too painful for him to revisit such a dark time in his life. This was a surprise to us. Up until now, we assumed that the 1980s were Pete's golden years. I mean, his band was on the nightly news. His logo was tagged all over the city. And the squatting movement he was so invested in was in full swing. Based on everything we've heard and read and watched, this guy was at the center of a cultural revolution. Isn't that what every artist wants? I guess not this one. He told us that all he remembers from that time is being terrorized by the police and misunderstood by everyone else. It seems like all that attention, especially after the riot, took its toll. He much prefers his life in Berlin. He says it's quieter there, that the people are more civilized, that strangers say hello back to you on the street. There's a video online posted by Berlin's Museum of Urban Contemporary Art just a year ago about a new mural being painted on the Schoenberg community wall. The artist is a 69-year-old American man wearing a baseball cap, hoodie, and jeans, all of which are too big for his skinny frame. He certainly looks like the Peter Missing from all those old grainy videos, albeit with a few more wrinkles, but he sounds completely different. My art changed. It was more political in the beginning of the 80s. And as I went along, I started thinking of the younger generation. So now my, friend, my work is more friendly. Uh, can reach a three-year-old and a grandmother and everybody in between. So that was the main goal of my work in this time. As he speaks, he's sitting in front of his creation, a giant cluster of colorful, abstract shapes. 
nestled in tightly among them, are a few cartoon figures. A fish, a sailboat, a person pointing into the distance, and a bird perched on top of an upside-down martini glass. Shoe Leather is a production of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. This episode was recorded, written, and produced by Lindsay Chu and Patrick Hagen. Joanne Farian is our executive producer and professor. Rachel Quester and Peter Leonard are our co-professors. Special thanks to Columbia Digital Libraries, Professor Del Maharaj, Ron Kuby, Clayton Patterson, and Paul DiRienzo. Shoe Leather's theme music, Squeegees, is by Ben Lewis, Doran Zunas, and Camille Miller, remixed by Peter Leonard. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our season four graphic was created by Lena Fenza and Gia Haydar. Mm-hmm.